understand. With righteousness like armor on your chest, and truth like a belt around your waist, your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith. Put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word. And you can stand against the tactics of the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Have you ever had a mischievous childhood to where you had the type of experience I had where you just got in so much trouble that you had to go see your dad for your daily whooping. All right, I, I've had that, okay, where I would have the situations in my life where I would like I'd take a bottle cap or take a lid to a milk carton and I would put it under a china cabinet and then start poking at it with a broomstick. And my mom would be like, John, what you doing? I said, there's a mouse under here. She'd be like, what? And then I'll just grab that cap with that broomstick and whip that thing out and watch my mom scream and break the house as she's running around in circles. And then I get a visit to my dad. Okay. <laughs> this is kind of how it goes. Well, I had one of those moments where it was time to visit my dad. It was time to get my spanking. And I was like, okay, here we go. But this time, this time, I came prepared. I put a science textbook down the back of my pants thinking he wouldn't notice that he would take his hand and swat and come across 320 pages of protection. And so, <laughs> and so I went to my dad. And my dad's like, boy, come across my lap. So across his lap I went, and I said, I know. I've been bad. I deserve my spanking. Give it to me real good. I want him to hurry up so he wouldn't notice. Okay? So I'm like, I'm laying there. I'm like, let's do it. Let's do it. I deserve it. I know it. And then I feel my dad's belly jiggling. So the problem was he started laughing because he saw this big honking square sticking out of my sweatpants. <laughs> he's laughing, but he can't let me know he's laughing because that kind of ruins the discipline. <laughs> so then, then he asked, he goes, he goes, what is this? And I'm like, this is me, ready for my spanking. He goes, no, what's this back here in your pants here? I'm like, oh, that, 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 that's my science textbook. <laughs> he's like, what's that doing there? Protection. That's what that is. It's for protection. It's like, boy, why are you putting that in the back? I'm, I'm confused now because it's like my dad doesn't understand. It's like his job is to hit it. My job is to block it, right? It's not like I'm going to sit there and go, hit it. You know, that's just not how that's going to work. Okay, but I need protection. That's what I need. And that's what it is in life, though, is that life is going to continually come at us. Satan's going to continually come at us. And we need protection. Right? We need protection. We need something to guard us, something to help us stand our ground. Because as Christians, we are called to stand firm. We are not called to retreat. We're not called to compromise. We're not called to give in. We're not called to weaken the faith or have a spirit of fear. We're called to boldly stand. And how are we going to boldly stand? What is it going to take? And so Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, and he's telling the Ephesians there about a way to battle Satan, about a way to stand firm against his tactics, stand firm against his methods, stand firm against his attacks. And he uses armor 
as an example. And I love armor as an example because I'm a geek, right? Because I was in the country of India when I bought this stuff, right? So I was there. I was at this big factory place. They do the armor for uh, the movie Last Samurai. They do the armor now for the Lord of the Rings uh, convention centers and everything. And I was there, and they're showing me all this armor. And I'm like, do you have anything that is from historical time period, like around 50 A.D.? And he goes, yeah, we got like old Roman stuff. I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm interested in. He goes, that's in our basement. And I'm like, you got the basement? Ooh, tell me more. You know, and so he leads me to the basement and shows me all this stuff. And I'm like, yes, I want it all. It's my precious. It, I want that and uh, that and uh, that and uh, that. And then he's like, it costs this much money. And I went, ooh, I want that and uh, that. And we'll call it good. <laughs> You know, and so I was able to acquire some of this. And here's what I have discovered amongst the past 15 or so years of research that I have learned that our understanding of how to apply and, and, and work with the armor of God as a metaphor in scripture has been greatly mis misunderstood and misplaced in some ways because we think of armor differently than what it really was. Usually when we think of armor, we might have this type of an image come to mind. Right? They might think of something like this. This is what's in like, like the Jesus movies and, and what's in a lot of the coloring books. Oh my, the coloring books. When I'm in like, like ju junior church or whatever, you know, when I'm not preaching, sometimes I'll go to junior church, that's where I belong. No, just, <laughs> I'll be there. And they have coloring pages. And it's like, oh look, coloring pages. And it usually looks something like this. And this is not the, this is not the image of the armor that we need to be thinking. This is accurate only for the areas of Rome where they have ceremonial armor. This is ceremonial armor. It is not battle armor at all. It's ceremonial armor. To try to give it an example, yep, that's how I feel. I'll join you in about three. Um, <laughs> but it's ceremonial armor. So think of it like this. If you were to look at a military man today, maybe he's in the Air Force or the Marines, whatever, they have different types of fatigues. They have different types of uniforms that they wear. And so you have this ceremonial uniform. My dad was a career Air Force. He was Air Force for 20 years, and he had his ceremonial uniform. It was solid blue with fancy little slack pants and ribbons that goes here. He had a little hat thingy with a nice bright bill on the front and all this like, like stuff all over it. Not something you fight with. You don't go to Vietnam in that. You don't go to Afghanistan in that. Like, you're just going to get wiped out. It doesn't work. If you're going to war, you don't wear the ceremonial gear. You wear battle gear, right? You get the vest, you get the camouflage, you get the, the rifles, the guns, the machine guns, you get a helmet that actually means something, and you get all this gear because you're ready now for the battle. And this is ceremonial gear. And when we think of, of Roman armor, we need to stop thinking of ceremonial gear and think a little different because there are subtle little differences that make a world of change in our understanding of the armor of God. And so we're going to kind of go through this. So how Paul starts off, hopefully you got your Bibles and you can have your apps open, your, your tablets fired up, Ephesians chapter 6, you'll see all of this. And starting around verse 11 as it works its way through, saying that, hey, people are not our enemies, Satan is our enemy, and we need to not be attacking people, we need to be dealing with Satan's attacks. People are captives, they need to be rescued, they don't need to be fought against. And then if we're going to stand against Satan, here's what we're going to need. And he goes through the armor. And he starts with, the belt of truth. And I find it fascinating that the first piece of armor he talks about is a belt. For me, that's like the last thing I put on. 
How about you? It's the last thing I put on. Although I do see some teenagers, and sometimes I wish they understood what a belt was for. But nonetheless, a, a belt is something like the last thing you put on. So it was weird to me that Paul mentions it first. And we'll cover that later on down, down the road here, maybe around 3.30. Uh, but, but nonetheless, uh, it's, like, it's like this belt of truth. And the belt looks like this. It's these little dangly leather things. That's the belt. It doesn't look like what we have. This has Amber, Crombie, and Fitch on the inside. Okay, it's these little leather things that usually have types of bone or metal sewed within them. And what they're for is for protecting below your waist. Because that's kind of important. Just thinking out loud. You know, you, you don't, you, you kind of need your legs. You know, I'm just, just thinking, what do you think I was talking about? Ah, you guys are a special group, I can tell. <laughs> you guys are my peeps, I love it. <laughs> okay, but it's for, you don't want your legs cut off. Now, how this tends to work is that the belt is designed to cover below the waist so that when a sword is coming at you and it happens to miss your shield or your sword and comes across your legs, you don't want it cutting you here because if it does, you kind of have veins that are important. And you have an artery that's important. And if that gets sliced, you bleed out. Okay, and it's a fatal blow and you need your legs. Okay, and so what Paul does is he likens that to the truth. And he says, we need to salve the truth if we're going to stand. We need to have the truth if we're going to protect ourselves to be able to stand. Okay, we need that. Almost as if he thought or feared that truth was going to come under attack. Surely that didn't happen in our society. Right? And we got this big battle right now, right? Of the truth being completely under attack. That's your truth. Well, that's your truth. And it's like, well, it doesn't really matter whose truth it is. And on and on the battle goes. And we need the truth. We need absolute truth. We need to know what is right and what is not right. We need to know, because if it is truly true, then we need to know it and we need to base ourselves on it. Because after all, Jesus said, I am the way and the Good, you know it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And who's the father of lies? Satan. So God, truth. Satan, not truth. Who do we need to stand with? God. See, it's like a team issue here. It's like, what jersey are you putting on? It's an important deal. Okay, we need to stand on the truth. We need it. And we'll be doubling back to this in just a little bit. But just keep this in mind. As Paul's starting off, he says, man... If you're going to be able to stand as a soldier against Satan, he's going to come at you with lies. He's going to come at you with accusations. He's going to come at you with falsities. He's going to make it look like it's right. He's going to take what is wicked and make it look like it's light. He's going to take what is immoral and call it moral. And we're going to have that attack upon us. And we need to know the truth. That's essential if we're going to understand the Bible, if we're going to understand doctrine, if we're going to stay true to God and his word, we need truth. And it has, we have to stand on it. Okay, so that's where Paul starts, is with truth. He then moves from the belt of truth to the breastplate of righteousness. And the breastplate is this honking thing right here. I love breastplates. They're so cool. Now, when I was doing my studies on this, a lot of my commentaries all made the same exact statement about breastplates. Drove me nuts when I realized how wrong they were. Okay, and they said this, that the breastplate only was for the front, therefore it was a piece of armor to signify you never retreat and you never turn your back. And I thought that was weird, because you don't have to turn your back to retreat, right? You can walk backwards and retreat. 
So having just it on the front doesn't mean we're not retreating. So I don't like that to begin with. Second of all, 100% of all battle armor of Rome's breastplates came with a, a back. Which means their back is covered just as much as the front. So the whole idea of not being able to turn around is false. Because sometimes Satan comes at us at different directions and we need to handle that. Okay, so sometimes we need to realize that we need protection on the back. So here's the thing. The, the armor, the breastplate, it protects this area. Okay, it protects the heart and your lungs, but particularly your heart, front and back. It protects the heart. Now, for the Bible and New Testament time period, the heart was the brain. I know. You're gonna, some of you might already know this, and it seems like old hat, but some of you might be like, wait, what? The heart's not the brain, Pastor Coin, because the heart... It's the heart, the brain's the brain, duh. They didn't think like that back then. Not that they were scientifically inaccurate. They just put their thinking in their chest. That's where they identified it. Okay, when Jesus heard that, uh, when people were thinking bad things about Jesus, it says in the text that Jesus knew what they were thinking in their heart. Okay, because that's where they, thought, that's where they viewed their thinking. That's where they viewed the relationships coming from. That's where they viewed their processing and their personality and their identity was in their chest, in their heart. Their emotions was in their stomach. Okay, their emotions was in their stomach or their bowel area. Okay, that's where their emotions were. We don't have it there in our life. In our culture, we have our thinking in our head, our emotions in our heart. We don't have much in our bowels except we had Taco Bell and shouldn't have and have regret. Okay, that's what we have there. Now, we do have one statement that kind of sits in that area. It's when we get nervous or filled with anxiety and we say, well, I got butterflies in my stomach. Oh, some of you know it. Some of you are younger and have never heard it before. <laughs> but we have butterflies in my stomach. That's the closest we have really in our society for that type of lingo. Otherwise, head, heart is our big focus in our society. Back in New Testament, heart, gut. Okay, that was their focus, heart and gut. And they wanted to protect their thinking. They wanted to protect their personality. They wanted to protect their identity. They want to be able to protect how they maintain their relationships. All of that is here within the heart. But it doesn't just say breastplate. It's a breastplate of righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I don't like big three-letter, three-dollar words that are all Christian lingo. You know, when people come at me saying, do you believe in substitutionary atonement? I just go, yeah, let's talk in English. Okay, I just, it's, I'll write that in a paper, but I don't want to use that type of language with everybody because I don't know what it means all the time. So let's talk about righteousness for a moment and what that means. It does not mean salvation. A lot of people like to think it does. Okay, what righteousness is about is that behavior which maintains your relationship with God. Okay, it's a behavior that maintains a relationship. That's what righteousness is. Best way I know to define it. So for example, let's say that you are married to someone and you buy your spouse a gift. Okay, you buy your spouse a gift. Whatever that gift is, whether it's a bouquet of flowers or, or whether it's a Lord of the Rings unextended edition. That'd be a really good gift. For me. <laughs> okay, but whatever the gift is. You, now, does that gift define and does that gift create a marriage no does it maintain the marriage yes okay that's what righteousness is this is why when abraham was willing to give up his son isaac on the altar that act was attributed to him as righteousness not that it saved him but it was him maintaining his relationship with god 
showing God that he is forefront and dead center in his life. It maintains that relationship. And if you're married to someone, you would want certain, you would have certain expectations for how that relationship would go. You might say that, let's say you're married, would you want your spouse to flirt with other people? Oh, you wouldn't want that. Would you want your spouse to treat you with dignity, respect, and tactfulness? Yes. Would you want your spouse to stand up for you and be there for you and defend you and protect your honor? Absolutely. See, this is what God wants from us. Things like that. And that is righteous behavior. That is about righteousness. And when we're talking about this armor, it's that type of righteousness. Okay, so it's that maintaining of the relationship between us and God. And so what Paul is saying is we need to put this breastplate on. Because what's going to happen is if we don't have the breastplate on, if we don't have it on, we're going to lose how we are defining ourselves. We're going to lose how our thinking is. We're not going to control our thoughts. And we're not going to maintain a relationship with God. It'll end up looking maybe something like this. You wake up in the morning, you have breakfast, you uh, go to, to work, you do your job, you come home, you have some supper, you watch some Netflix, you go to bed, you wake up and you repeat. Okay, and that type of life, in and out, on cycle, is a life without the breastplate, because you're not maintaining your relationship with God. You're just running the rat race of life, the end. You're on a treadmill spiritually going nowhere. You're not wearing the breastplate. Because you're not doing anything to maintain that relationship. You aren't growing it. You aren't making it more personal. You aren't developing it. You aren't, you aren't doing anything with it. You're just living life on repeat. And life is not meant to be the instructions of a shampoo bottle. It's not lather, rinse, repeat. That's not how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live with this vibrancy of this breastplate that's on, protecting and defending the relationship with God, defending his holiness, working with it, building that relationship up. That's what we're supposed to be doing with it. But Satan wants us to take it off. He wants us not to have it so that our life becomes numb. So that our life loses its meaning, loses its flavor. Because how are we ever going to be the salt and light of the world if we've lost our flavor because we aren't having our breastplate on? So it's vitally important that we have this breastplate. And so Paul continues and he says, he talks about the, the sandals. And the sandals are kind of cool. Now my sandals aren't as cool as real, real sandals because they were way out of my budget. But the sandals, they, they strap up the leg because they're meant to stay on and you do not want to kick a shoe. Like, I don't know if you ever had it that you've lost a shoe doing something. Am I the only one? Man, I have lost a shoe so many times. I'll be like running, and all of a sudden I like walk out of my shoe. Someone steps on the back of my shoe, and it, it falls off. Ever do that to somebody on purpose? You just like walk, you just kind of go step. They just step right out of their shoe, and you're like, ha, ha. Just me? See, this is why I got daily whoopings. <laughs> Okay, and but, but so, so these sandals are not meant to be able to fall off like that because they strap up the leg, but they also have in the soles, there are multiple layers of leather, and in the soles are nails, okay, pieces of metal that jut out to allow you to dig into the ground, kind of like a soccer cleat, okay, where you got these metal things or things sticking out of the foot so that when you step on your ground and somebody pushes against you, you got that extra reinforcement. You can actually give a push back. You can actually do something when your feet are that solid. Somebody hits you, you're not going to go down as easily. 
unless you're a football player and you're hitting me. Then I'm going down. But, but spiritually, you're not going down easily. That's what that's meant to be. And it's fascinating that Paul says that the sandals are the gospel of peace. And again, the, the commentaries I had said that the whole purpose is that you're supposed to have these sandals of the gospel of peace, which means that you go and you share the gospel to people because the sandals represent the gospel and you're supposed to share it with people because your feet are supposed to go. The problem with that is, number one, Paul said, with the armor of God, you are to take your stand, not move forward. Okay, now I am all for sharing the gospel. Please don't misunderstand me. I am all for evangelizing. I'm all for missions. I'm all for that. Preaching the gospel and preaching the word. Amen. Go for it. Okay, I'm all for that. So that's right theology, just wrong verse. Because the sandals of the gospel of peace is not about sharing the gospel. It's about standing firm. Okay, if, you're, if, you're, if your sandals were about sharing the gospel, what that functionally would be is I'm going up to someone, taking off my sandal and giving it to them. And that doesn't seem like a really good way to stand your ground in a battle. It would seem weird if someone's coming at me with a sword and shield and armor going, Aah! and I just take off my shoe and go, toss. Like, that just doesn't seem effective to me. It would be great in a comedy movie. I would expect Jim Carrey to do that. Just, woohoo, thunk, you know, and, 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 it's, and it's funny, and we laugh, and we go, ah, comedy. But it doesn't work in a real-life battle, okay? It doesn't work. Because we're supposed to take the gospel of peace, and that is something that we can be able to be ready with. Because when you're sandaling your feet, that means you're ready with urgency. You're ready with urgency. So the gospel is supposed to help you be ready with urgency. So check this out. When you're sandaling your feet, it means being ready. So my kids, I ask them to get ready. Maybe you brother parents can relate to this. I'll ask them to be ready. I'll say, you know, get dressed and get ready because the movie starts, church starts, we need to go, whatever the case is, your doctor appointment is, whatever it is, you need to get ready. Get dressed and be ready. And then the time comes. Okay, time to go. And I'll go to my son, go to my daughter. And I'll be like, are you ready? And they're like, we're ready. And I'll say, no, you're not. Because you don't even have your shoes on. And they're like, well, my shoes are right over there. But you're not ready. Get up, get your shoes on. Let's go. It's time to go. Now we're late. And they're like, oh, I'll get my shoes on. And then they won't even get them on. They won't even untie them. They have to put their toes in and walk on the tippy toes. There, my shoes are on. And I'm like, they're not stiletto heels. Get those shoes on. We need to be ready. Come on now. You know, it, it's just like every day. Every day. I'm like, you're, are you ready? No, you're not. Get your shoes on. No, you, well, get your shoes on. And then when it's like, get your shoes on, they're like, they're like, I don't even know where my shoes are. You just tripped over them, picked them up, put them on your feet. Good, I'm not the only one. Yeah, but this idea of sandaling your feet means you're ready. It means you're ready and with urgency because the time is now. What that means is this. We need to understand what the gospel is now. And it's interesting that it's the gospel of peace. Interesting that it's the gospel of peace. Because here's the thing. Jesus preached the gospel before he ever went to the cross. It says in the beginning of Matthew that Jesus was preaching the good news. Same definition, same word. Good news, gospel, synonyms. Evangelion, same exact Greek word. It means good news, means gospel, same thing. Jesus preached it with its entirety before ever going to the cross without predicting it, which is interesting. Because here's what it is about. The gospel, it needs Jesus on the cross. It's about Jesus on the cross, 
and it's about peace. And not just peace as in, cool dude, smoke your bong, okay? It's not that type of thing. It's not, it's not vaping with your fingers, okay? It is about peace as in shalom being restored. Because when sin happened, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, shalom fractured. Shalom broke. There was no longer harmony. There was no longer any type of peace or prosperity between people and God, people and each other, and people and creation trifected broke okay they were broken the relationship with god they were distant and apart from god they were broken with the relationship with each other not at peace with each other and not at peace with the world with creation all of it was broken and the gospel is about god his kingdom coming and his kingdom being at hand and that kingdom is restoring peace it's restoring shalom it's fixing it it's like life is a big mirror. We're in the image of God. We reflect God because of the fall. A ball-peen hammer hit that mirror, and it shattered it, and it shattered in random ways and broken ways. Every mirror shatters a little differently, but we got it broken. And restoring it is not just putting the pieces together, because when you put the pieces together and you look at the mirror, you don't got just a reflection with lines in it. You got like little mini reflections of you. Ever notice how weird that is? And it's still, it's just all broken, and it's jagged, and it's twisted. But Jesus will come when Jesus returns again and God's kingdom is ushered in and it's full. The mirror gets restored. No lines, no breaks, no cracks. That's the restoration of shalom. Perfect harmony and prosperity and lack of conflict between us and God, us and each other, and us and creation. That's the gospel of peace, the gospel of shalom. That's what that's about. And we're going to be ready to take our stand we need to know and be sure-footed that God is restoring things and that in the end, God wins. His restoration will not falter. His restoration will not be incomplete. His restoration will not be partial. It will be full. It will be total. And he's going to bring it in. And we can stand on that like nails into the ground. Have sure footing with the gospel of peace that God is bringing in his kingdom. It's in part now and will be in full later. And it will come and peace will be restored. That's the gospel. That's what that's about. Isn't it awesome that God came not just to save our souls but to restore creation. That's why Paul says that all creation groans and longs for redemption. Next time you see a cow, don't hear a moo, just be in the moo. It's creation groaning for redemption. Because all of creation longs for shalom to be restored. And so we need to stand on this gospel. We need to stand on this with our feet saddled with it. Sandaled with it. Not saddled, that would be weird. But sandaled with it so that we can take our stand. And Paul continues on, talks about the shield of faith. I love the shield. This is a mini version of the shield. The actual shield is four foot by like two and a half foot, but it's four foot, which means it would come to like around here. That's a honking shield. And when you're coming from India to the U.S. and you're putting everything in your luggage, that's not fitting. And the shield was like $600 more than this one, so I said it could stay. <laughs> I'm not buying it. But it still gives us a good idea of what the shield is like. 
Now, when you look at movies and you look at coloring pictures, they got a shield that looks like this. Right? They got this wooden shield and this round shield. And that's, that, that was ceremonial. That's ceremonial. Okay? And when the, when the enemy uses flaming arrows, wood shields are not going to help. Am I right? Okay, and round shields aren't going to help either because then you're just sitting there trying to be like, it's like playing, playing like, like ping pong or something, just trying to block it. But that's not how it's supposed to work. How shields are supposed to work is like this. So what they would do is you have a shield. Imagine four foot, right? So it could go to the ground to about, about my neck. So that's just putting it on the ground, and I'm already going to be covered up to here. I could just be like, ha-ha, can't see me, peek-a-boo. You know, I mean, these shields were honking huge that they used right and then they would also they have these little bends on the side that allows them to take a shield and interlock with another shield because shields were not meant to be used in isolation roman battle shields are used to form a wall or a turtle shell and so you put them together side by side you have multiple people and they would connect their shields together and back and back they would go and then people in the second row behind lift up their shields and they would connect the bottom to the front and angle it so then the people behind would connect their shields they would form a complete turtle shell so that the whole band could be able to stand together and be what looks like an impenetrable force because if we're going to fight satan we can't do it by ourselves we need to do it together we got to take our shields of faith and interlock them together so that we can form this shell, form this protective barrier like a force field. And it's neat that Paul calls it a shield of faith. So the word faith, I like to define it as trust. That we trust God. That we trust him. Okay, then if we say we have faith in God, we're saying that we have trust in God. You see how those work really well as a good definition. Okay, it's a real simple way to understand it. And so when we don't have the shield and we don't have that trust, you know what we have? Fear. We have fear. And people in the church who don't have their shield of faith, they will talk about repeatedly conspiracy theories. They will talk about conspiracy theories. They'll say, well, this is happening and this is happening. We got, we got laptops that we don't know. We got hidden emails and we got Twitter trying to hide people's posts. And we got false news here and censored news there. And all the people in power doing all the things. And they, they talk about this conspiracy and that conspiracy. And here's the thing. Regardless of which ones are true and which one aren't, the Bible actually tells us don't yell conspiracy because no conspiracy on the face of this earth will ever be stronger than the hand of God. No conspiracy on this earth will ever frustrate the plans of God. God will do what God will do, the end. We don't have to have a life of fear of who's president of the United States. You vote like you're supposed to vote as a good citizen, willing to be able to be part of the instrument of God, part of his plan. So you vote like you're supposed to vote. And if the person who gets the presidency isn't someone who you like, you don't act in fear because you know that that president's not stronger than God. And God is going to reign either way. And so we have the shield of faith to block the arrows of Satan. We have the shield of faith to trust that God is in control. That he is the Alpha and Omega. That he is the one. We get to live a life of faith, not a life of fear. And it's fascinating when we think about arrows... Because in the Bible, arrows are constantly referred to metaphorically as words. 
all the time as words, that words are being shot out like, like arrows. In fact, some examples for you. Uh, Psalm 64, 3, bitter speech is as an arrow that gets shot. Proverbs 26, 18 and 19, that when the neighbor says something deceptive and then says, I was just kidding, that is a, a throwing firebrands and arrows. Now, Jeremiah 9, 8, the tongue is a, is a deadly arrow and it speaks arrows of deceit. And on and on the Bible goes referring to words being like an arrow. Let me just tell you, your, your parents were wrong when they said to say the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Okay, they were wrong with that. One, they'd never been hit by a dictionary. And two, words do and can cut like a knife. They can cut and shoot and penetrate like an arrow. They can. They don't have to. But they can. When we have the shield of faith, what does a metal shield do to arrows? It blocks it. How does that work? When we have trust in God, when he says we are a child of God, when he says that we are sinners but we've been forgiven, when he says that we are fallen but we've been redeemed, when he says that we are of his offspring and that we are his children, that is true. No matter what anyone says, no matter what anyone claims, that stays true and we can trust that. Which means someone could say whatever they want, we can live life unoffended. Because their words are false claims. Because God's words are true. And we can trust that. And if we trust God and his declaration of our redemption and in our identity being made in the image of God and being a redeemed child of God, then we got something that no one can poke an arrow at and remove. So we need that shield of faith. What I usually tell kids is whenever they have bullies and whatnot, just yelling at them and insulting them, I tell people to deal with a bully, you've got two great things you can do in your arsenal. One, the word is just one word. It's so. Okay, that disarms a bully. I had bullies all my life. I mean, you don't look like me without having bullies. Okay, and, and I got called spaghetti head and, and Bozo the Clown and, and, and I, got, I got kicked and pushed around and because I was always small and weird. And, and so they, they would make fun of me. But I got to learn that the two letters of S-O were very, very powerful. They'd be like, hey, look, you're a spaghetti head. And so, like, what do you say to that? <laughs> it's just so disarming. I love the word so. But second is, write down what the Bible says that God believes about you. Write that on a card, keep it in your wallet. Keep it in your purse. Hang it on your mirror so when you wake up in the morning, you can look at it and remind yourself who you are in the eyes of God. Let scripture, and use the verse, put the verse with it. Whichever verse is working for you, you add that to it and you read it day in, day out. So when someone comes at you and they tell you you are inferior, they tell you you are incomplete, they tell you you are a loser, you are whatever, you're a nut job, whatever's going on, whatever they yell at you about, you have scripture that you can say is truth. This is how God views me. And I have the shield of faith. And your arrows are not welcome here. And you will not penetrate my heart. You will not penetrate my mind. You will not penetrate me. Because God has declared me to be his redeemed child. And that is what stands. And we can have that shield of faith and stand absolutely, absolutely firm. And then Paul moves on to the helmet. I love the helmet. Because let me just be honest with you. You need your head. Right? You need your head. You kind of need that, right? I mean, it's easy to get behind in this world, and you've got to stay ahead. 
Okay, two people got that joke. That's all right. That was a different joke than earlier today. <laughs> My wife told me if I tell too many jokes, heads will roll. Come on. It's Sunday. We can have fun with dad jokes. Right? I mean, Jesus invented them. He did. Did you not know this? Jesus was, being, was walking one day. Excursion. Uh, Jesus was walking one day. ADD moment. And, and, and blind men were following him. And he just kept ignoring them. They're like, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And he said nothing. He just walked. And then he walked into a house. And they followed him. Which I thought, man, what a real mean move of Jesus to walk into a house. Like blind people know. Can you imagine? They're like trying to follow Jesus. And they don't know he went into a house. They're walking into the wall. Thunk. You know, and it's just, wow, Jesus, what are you doing? He walks into a house, and they followed him. They found their way in. They go, Jesus, have mercy on us. He goes, what do you want me to do? They said, we want to see. And so he heals them, and then he tells them, see here, no one knows of this. There it is. It took a moment. <laughs> so Jesus invented the pun, so they're biblical. But when you're dealing with a helmet, here's the thing about helmet. One, they're rather heavy, right? They're heavier than a baseball cap. Okay, and they also are very unflattering. I mean, you rarely need a helmet on a date. Rarely. <laughs> okay, and so you got the helmet, and here's the thing about the helmet. So they're heavy, they're unflattering, they're bulky. Most people think they're about the brain. And that really isn't their main focus. Yes, they protect the head, but the main part up here is meant to make you look more threatening and intimidating by giving you higher height but also it is meant to have other focuses than just the top of the head. The top there is just to keep your helmet from sliding down. Okay, the real goal is two focuses on it. There's two focus primary goal of the helmet. And when you look at ceremonial helmets, they're missing something that battle helmets have. This great little bridge right in the front runs right down here. And what's that protecting? Yeah, you know what it is. Okay, it protects the nose. Here's the thing, if you're in a fight, now I'm not promoting violence, I'm not encouraging you to get into a fight, okay, since I've been saved, I haven't been in a fight since, although the day is young, uh, but, but nonetheless, when you're going to be in a fight, you go for the nose, okay, you go for the nose. The movies have them going for the jaw, going for the head, no, 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 you'll break your hand. Go for the nose. One, it's made of cartilage, it's softer, okay, it won't hurt your hand as much. That's one, okay? Again, I'm not promoting violence. <laughs> Just letting you know. You know, I, Christians should not start a fight, but I don't think they should lose one either, okay? And so, <laughs> go for the nose, all right? So when you go for the nose, what happens are two things. One, the person starts to tear up so they can't see very well because you're going to break the nose if you get a good polyp in there, right? You're able to pop in there, right? And you, you break the nose, and they're going to cry, okay? And not, not cry like, <laughs> but they're going to, your eyes water up. It's a natural reaction of the body. Even if they don't feel the pain, they're going to tear up. That means they don't see as well. And second, they're going to gag on the blood that's running down the back of the throat. Because you broke the nose, the blood won't all drain out this way, it runs back. I'm not promoting violence. I'm not. But <laughs> it runs down the back of the throat. Now they can't breathe and they're coughing. You see why the nose is important? <laughs> you guys did not think you were going to hear about how to fight in the church today. I could just tell. Okay, but that's why you go for the nose. That's why the armor on all, 100% of Roman battle armor has protection of the nose. Okay, it has protection of the nose. It also has something else about it. 
It has these neat little eye sockets that are in it that actually cuts off your peripheral vision. Meaning that it's like blinders on a horse. You can't quite see as well to the side. I got this image from the movie Troy, and this was where they put a camera inside of a helmet. Now that bridge that's coming down the middle actually comes down a lot deeper, but because of how our eyes are on each side, it looks higher than it really is. But the helmet there comes all the way to the base of the nose. Okay, but our eyes, interestingly, do cover some of that shadow that's there. And so within this idea here is that the helmet focuses you on the task at hand. Okay, you don't have to worry as much of what's coming to the right or the left, although you can turn your head to a degree. You can't turn your head a lot because of the armor part of the helmet that comes down below the chin. It will hit your breastplate. So you can't turn your head completely forcing you to rely on your co-workers, on your fighters, on your, on, your, on your army that's with you, on other Christians, to have your back, to have your sides, okay, that you stay together. This is why the Bible says it is not good to forsake the assembly together, because we need to be together so that we have each other's sides, so that we don't get flanked by the enemy. Okay, so it's vitally important. But the idea of the helmet is that it focuses you forward. Focuses you forward. Now, why is it the helmet of salvation? Because the helmet of salvation is something we cannot lose our focus on. We cannot lose our focus on our salvation. Because if you are saved, if you are bought by the blood of Christ, that is you. That is who you are. Okay, so it's very similar to the previous point, but that is who you are. We need to focus on that. That yes, we're not perfect, but we're saved. Yes, we screw up, but we've been redeemed. Yes, we're fallen, but that's not where we're going to stay. Okay, we need to focus on that. We cannot get distracted from that. It's interesting. If, you ever, you, if you'd lived life without the helmet, it looks something like this. When you introduce yourself to somebody you've never met before, how do you describe you to that person? How do you introduce yourself to them? Within the first five minutes, what are the facts you're going to say? And it's interesting. I've done this. I have talked to people. And I will talk with them. And it's amazing. Almost always, they start at some point within the first minute of their job. Hi, my name is so-and-so, and this is what I do for a living. And they give me their job. Let me ask you, if you lost your job, are you still you? Then why are you talking about something that doesn't matter? Who are you? Because if we're introducing ourselves to someone, I want to know who you are. And if your job is not your identity, then why are you telling me something that's not you? Isn't that interesting? And some people, especially if they live in the high-end district, they'll say where, where they live. Hi, my name is so-and-so, I came from over here. But if you were to lose your house or move, are you still you? Then why, why does that matter where you live? You see, this is what it looks like when we're living our life with the helmet off because we put our identity into everything else other than Christ. When we put our identity in other places than being made in the image of God and being a redeemed child of the king, and our identity is in anything other than that, what happens is people can mess with that and they can mess with you. The next thing you know, you think you could change your identity by just a swipe of a knife. And some type of surgical alteration and transition, you could be a new person when that doesn't change who you are. No knife will change you. You can have a nose job, boob job, I don't care. It's not changing who you are. 
Your chromosome's the same. Your heart's the same. Your personality's the same. God's love for you is the same. God's desire for your life is the same. And being in the image of God is the same. You don't need a knife. You don't need all the fancy jobs and all the high income. You don't need that because you're still you. But if we're going to be distracted, we're not wearing the helmet. The helmet of salvation tells you who you are and focuses you on that. Why is the world going crazy about identity politics? Because they don't have a helmet. And to live life, man, you need a helmet. You need the helmet to focus. You need it to focus. And then lastly, the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. And it's fascinating that, that it's the sword of the spirit. In the commentaries, they say, look, this is the only offensive weapon. This is what you're used to attack. No. No. Paul never said to use the armor of God to attack. The armor of God is to do what? Stand firm. We are not to use the Bible as a weapon. That's what the Baptists do that have fundamental militant in their name. I saw a church like that once in Grand Rapids. It was a fundamental militant church of Christ, or Baptist church. And I was like, man, if you got fundamental, I want to like be scared of it. If you got militant in it, I really am scared. Like I almost wanted to attend a week just to see what it was like. You know, that was really, you know, but that's not how it's supposed to be. You don't use the Bible as a weapon to beat somebody over the head with. The purpose of the Bible being a double-edged sword is to cut the sin out of your life. Okay, that's why it's referred to constantly as a double-edged sword. And as, a, as a, a part of the armor of God is that it's God's word that we're able to swing, to cut, only cut sin out of our life, but to also be that thing that we defend ourselves with. It's, every piece comes from the word of God. It's the authority. It's the authority. Okay, and so that's what we need to have is this sword as our authority. But that still brings us back to one interesting question. And we're going to close with this. Why did Paul list the belts of truth first? So bizarre that he uses the belt of truth first. I, if I were Paul and I were writing the Bible... Well, in all honesty, if I were Paul writing the Bible, I'd do the truth first because that's what God wanted. But if it were up to me and only up to me, I might, I don't know, I might start with the sandals because when you're, I'm, I'm, I've worn this armor several times and when you put that breastplate on, you're not putting sandals on. Like, that's not happening, right? I put the breastplate on, I'm all buckled, buckled up and I'm just like, <laughs> it's just, it isn't happening. I'm like, you know, it just isn't. I'm, I, I put my sandals on first, right? And then after I put the sandals on, then I deal with the breastplate and then the helmet, and then I deal with everything else, right? But it's just, why would you start with the belt of truth? And part of that, I wonder if it's because society is growing constantly superficial. Constantly, our society is moving away from truth. On Facebook, not that long ago, uh, this graphic was shared by over a million people within a week. It was even shared by Bernie Sanders, which means you know it's got to be right. right. And so here's this graphic. It says that the Powerball was at $1.3 billion, and the U.S. population is 3 million people. And if we were just quit doing the Powerball and just take that money and distribute it amongst all the people, everybody would receive $4.3 million. And, and Bernie Sanders put on there, this is why socialism works. 
<coughs> their math is wrong. I took out a calculator. I don't know why no one else took out a stupid calculator. I did the math. It's not $4.33 million per person. It's $4.33. Grab your phone. Look it up. It is. It's $4.33. Like, I'm like, what is this? And then you got to take taxes out of it. So it's two bucks. Yeah, socialism works. Thank you, Bernie Sanders. I got two bucks. I can go to McDonald's and maybe ride a Meyer pony. You know, it's just, it's just, I mean, why did people, how did this get shared over a million times? Because people don't care about truth. They don't care about truth. I had this textbook. I got my bachelor's degree from Grand Valley State University. And I was at, when I was at Grand Valley, I had this science book. It was a big old honking thing. Not the science book for my pants. That was much, much earlier. Uh, but, but it was the science book at, at Grand Valley. And it had all this stuff about evolution in it. And I went to my teacher, my professor, and I said, I have a question for you. I said, this picture is actually wrong. This drawing is actually completely inaccurate and not anywhere close to reality. And this was actually, this, this archaeological dig was a hoax. And this was, and he said, on all of them, you're right, that is true. And I said, why is it in the textbook? He said, because it represents what we know to be true. <clears throat> like, I'm sorry, if a Christian were to do that in a science book and say, hey, here's a whole bunch of false information and false graphs, but it represents what we believe. Like, we would not, get, we would not hear the end of that. But they can do it, and they get a multi-million dollar book publication. Okay, it's just bizarre. People don't care about the truth anymore. That's what's happening in our society. They have lost this whole thing about truth. Where now it's your truth and your truth. And it doesn't matter whose truth is more true or less true. It's your truth and that's fine. Sure, Meghan Markle, that's your truth. That works. And it's just messed up. It's like what has happened to the desire for truth? It has been completely lost. In fact, I'm currently living in Illinois, and in our public school system that my kids were in, for the first time, I've been a public school person my whole life. I grew up in public school. I did everything public school. My first degree was from a state college, state university. Uh, my kids have always gone to public school. For the first time in my life, we pulled our kids out of the public schools. And I, I just couldn't believe how bad it got. And so I'm at, I'm at the school, and I'm working with, with, I'm talking to the school board members, I'm talking to teachers, I'm trying to figure it out. They have decided to completely remove spelling fully from the curriculum from K to 12, and they no longer do spelling. It's, it's gone. They voted that in a year and a half ago. It takes effect this upcoming school year. They never do spelling. Okay, and I asked them, why don't you have spelling anymore? And they told me, I kid you not, well, spelling's racist. I'm like, spelling's racist? How does that work? I had no idea, like, A was what, black and B's white? I, I don't understand. Like, like, how is spelling racist? And they're like, well, you see, spelling was created by a white guy. I'm like, I'm pretty sure Hebrew's older than English, and I'm pretty sure they're not white. I'm pretty sure Ethiopia is a lot older than the United States, and they weren't white. And they have spelling, they got vocabulary. What do you mean spelling's racist? How does that work? They say, well, you see, it's the uh, certain people of different ethnic persuasions struggle with spelling, and it's unfair for them to get worse grades, and so we're removing it. I'm like, how about you teach them? Like, like are you telling me? And they said, they said I'm like, your, your scores are all really low. And they said, yeah, that's why we're removing a lot of the stuff from our information, because the scores are so bad. And you see, we're a poor area, and poor areas you would expect to have low scores. 
And I'm like, what, you're saying poor people are dumb? And they said, no. I'm like, guess what you just said? If you're poor and you're not white, you must be stupid. And you're calling me racist? Like, like how does that work? You know, it's just amazing. And so they're, they also are removing uh, legit math. They're saying that if you get the wrong answer, it's okay as long as you were consistent in how you got your wrong answer. And this is for high school, y'all. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, like how, how, what, how and what does that even work? I'm talking to someone on the board, and this is what they're telling me is on the curriculum. And I'm like, how does that even? And they're like, yeah, if they completely fail the test, that's perfectly all right. If they get a zero, that's okay. We'll just let them retake the test later and retake the test again and retake the test again. And if they get an improvement of a certain percentage, we'll give them a $10 uh, Amazon card. So if you get like a zero and then you get a 10%, because you had a 10% increase, you get a $10 Amazon card. So guess what kids are doing? Everybody's bombing the test, and now they're only increasing by 10% and 10% and 10%. So they're getting like 100 bucks by the end of the year. And they think kids are stupid. <laughs> okay, this is a problem. They don't want truth anymore. Truth is being eradicated. It's being eliminated. And I'm like, man, if you're not teaching math, I don't want these people to be my banker. Because if I deposit a $100 check, I don't want them to tell me I have a balance of three bananas. Because that's not buying me a car. Okay, that just doesn't work. And so here's the thing. So I'm, I'm talking with some kids, and, and, and I'm talking with them, and, I, and, they're, and they're, they're telling me how they're spelling things. I'm like, that's not how it's spelled. That's not how it's spelled. And they go, well, what difference does it make how it's spelled? If you know what I'm talking about, isn't that enough? So what difference does it really make? And then I hear other people argue with them with superficial arguments. Not even about the truth. They end up saying stuff like, well, if you don't communicate well, you're not going to be able to get a job, you're not going to make as much money, and you're not going to be able to sell stocks, and you're going to be poor and homeless and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's not even the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is this. If we're going to put on the belt of truth, it's going to look like this when it comes to spelling. Number one, if we're made in the image of God, then that means there is right and there is wrong in this world. And we need to pursue what is right, regardless. We need to pursue what is right. Number two, we have a message we need to proclaim. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to make that absolutely clear without misunderstanding. And because it's a spiritual war, confusion already is there. We don't need inaccurate grammar and spelling to make it worse. Number three, and even more so, God created language. Language is important to God. Genesis chapter 1 says that in the beginning, God spoke. He created by speaking. Language is his idea, and we need to appreciate his idea. And God does not appreciate it when his gifts and his creations are mocked and scoffed at. Language matters because God invented it, and it matters to him. We need to be people of truth. No more of this lying. No more of this deception. No more of this fake news. We need truth. We've got to stand on that. I'm reminded of a little story of a guy that went to his priest. He was at a Catholic church. And he went to his priest and he said, uh, he said Father... I, I'm in this school, and I learned something called evolution, and I read the Bible, I see creation, but they don't line up, and I don't understand, how does this work? Can you help me? And the priest turned to the boy and said, quote, 
good little boys don't ask questions like that. And sent him away. That boy's name was Dan Brown. He grew up to be an evolution Gnosticist, wrote the book The Da Vinci Code. Reinvented Gnosticism into the world. Made it popular. Brought about the idea of sacred femininity and changed the whole scope of how we understand feminism. All because a priest couldn't stand on the truth. It is important that we be people of truth. God is a God of truth. Tell me, church, are you willing to stand on the truth? I know it won't be popular. I know it won't be socially acceptable. I know you won't have positive memes made about you. I know you won't get a dozen Instagram followers for it. But are you willing to stand on the truth? Yes, the world will push and attack. That's why we need the armor of God to stand firm. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, how awesome it is that you've given us your word. And we're so grateful to have it. And Lord, sometimes we don't spend the time in it that we need to. And so we just are ignorant of your truth. We're ignorant of the truth of your word. We're ignorant of how you created everything. And we're ignorant of how you work in this world. I ask, Lord, that you show us our failure in this. Reveal to us times that we have that we can just take a moment to reflect upon your word. That we might grow, grow in you, grow in our faith in you and our trust in you. Lord, help us to wear this armor. That we make a stand for you and your kingdom. And I ask, Lord, that you give us your spirit of, of boldness and courage. Because sometimes we're going to be faced with fear. And I ask, Lord, for your strength. It's in your son's name, Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen. And there is a 